Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Call 909-353-1050 and let us know what's really on your mind. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. KCAA Radio, the station that leaves no ranter behind. 909-353-1050. If I were a lion and you were a tuna, I would swim out in the middle of the ocean and freaking eat you. Let's hear your voice. Make it loud and proud on our KCAA rant line. 909-353-1050. That number again, 909-353-1050. Thanks for calling the KCAA rant line. For comments, concerns, and complaints, please hold... KCAA Loma Linda. Listen online at www.kcaaradio.com. You've heard AM, you've heard FM. Now, tune in to DM Radio, the world's longest running show about data. Each week, host Eric Cavanaugh interviews the brightest minds in the world of information management. Want to be on a show? Send an email to info at dmradio.biz. Now, here's your host. Eric Cavanaugh. All right, ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome back once again to the longest running show in the world about data. It's called DM Radio. Yours truly, Eric Cavanaugh here. Excited to enter 2024, our first show of the year, and DM Radio turns 16 years old next month. So apparently it's going to get a driver's permit. We'll be able to drive around and uh, meet all of you. I'm joking, of course, but it's been a wild ride. And I have to say, I knew 16 years ago that data was going to be huge. It was going to be really important for the business world. And uh, I am shocked at how big it's become. Of course, now AI is the hot topic. Gen AI, thanks to ChatGPT, Google's Bard, of course, and Tropic. There are multiple companies in this space now. AI is white hot, but guess what? You know what AI needs? Data. And in fact, clean, governed, trusted data is the cornerstone of good AI success. We'll talk about that a bit today. And of course, Gen AI is the hot topic. Interactive AI is what we're going to be talking about today. We'll talk about Gen AI in a few weeks. We may talk a bit about it today on this show. But I can tell you that AI in this new iteration and in this new phase is going to absolutely transform business, business applications, how business applications run, what they do. I think a lot of these AI models are going to subsume whole segments of traditional enterprise software. Low-hanging fruit, certainly chatbots. That's one thing interactive AI is good for. Uh, also, things like HR, basic questions for HR, customer service, things of this nature. These technologies are great. But down the road a little bit, I look to this as a huge transformation in the analytics space. 
And I think the big vision in my mind is that every company, every big company at least, or every forward-thinking company is going to have their own model. They're probably going to pick their poison, either OpenAI through Microsoft or Google's Gemini or Anthropic with Claude. They're going to pick their poison and they're going to start training their model, ideally using a vector database is typically how you do these things, but you can actually embed it into the model itself and they're going to build out their own models. Well, a couple of interesting things here before we bring our guests in, and we have two absolute rock star guests today, Sanjeev Mohan of Sanjmo, former gardener analyst, now on his own, doing tremendous work. And my good buddy, Usama Fayad, who has a cool new gig now. He is the inaugural executive director for the Institute for Experiential AI at Northeastern University. So we're going to talk about that and some of the secrets, the dirty little secrets, if you will, of making AI really work which, you know, the narrative, as I like to say, the narrative is always wrong. So the narrative in the media is that, oh, AI is going to take our jobs and it's bad. It's the red-eyed robot and uh, you can just flip it on and it's going to run your company. That is absolutely positively not the case. AI really is going to require a lot of training, a lot of attention. But as I suggest, every company is going to have, every big company is going to have their own model. They're going to work on that. And you got to be careful about training these models, you know, so you want embeddings or how you train them, anchors of truth, as someone called them. I love that concept. And you'll use this RAG model, which refers to retrieval augmented generation. And basically, RAG, which came out of Facebook, is designed to ground or moor the content that comes out of a large language model. So you have to remember these large language models, they are predictive in nature. That's really all they are. They're systems of weightings. They've been trained on all this open text that's available on the interwebs. And their job is to predict what words you th- it, you want based upon your prompts. So you know the old cliche, ask a stupid question, get a stupid answer. Well, load a stupid prompt, get a stupid return. Is what's gonna happen with all that stuff. But be careful about training them. I often use this uh, analogy of raising children. That's what you're doing with embeddings. All the, the significant memories you have in your life, whether it's school or at work or other places, those are embeddings in your personal model, your you know real world AI-like model. So it's hard to untrain stuff. You gotta be careful about that. So you don't wanna get it off on the wrong foot. You wanna get it off on the right foot. And that's gonna be quality trusted data, which means the data management stuff is really important, even more important than it was before. But with that fun opening, let me bring in Sanjeev Mohan of Sanjmo. Sanjeev, these are crazy times we're in. I mean, this is a massive inflection point that is going to affect basically every corner of business. What are your thoughts about AI and where these things are going? So I I love how spontaneous this whole uh, recording is because I had no idea you would start with example of how a child learns because what AI is really trying to do is seriously mimic how humans learn uh, stuff, how children learn. And and actually there's a lot of very interesting research and parallels between the human memory and LLMs. For example, in our brain, you know, the back part of our brain is called the hippocampus. Hippocampus is uh, actually the couple of uh, other parts, uh, amygdala is another one. These uh, these are the oldest parts of our human brain and they store our long-term memories. They are like vector databases. Mm. The uh, the youngest part of human brain is the front. It's called the prefrontal cortex. 
And the prefrontal cortex is where reasoning takes place. So it takes uh, the memory that we have and it reasons in front of our head uh, in prefrontal cortex. That part is a, is is like an LLM. So why is it so important for humans to have a long restful night of sleep? Is because all the experiences that we gather that get lodged into our hippocampus, the neural network then starts wiring them together, and so so then next time we have a similar situation, we know how to react, and that happens by reasoning. Now, AI is not very good at reasoning at this point, but we are getting there. Other thing AI is not very good at is is taking actions. So what is it good at? It's good at at reading long documents. Uh, In fact, uh, it's finding a lot of uh, already a lot of adoption in contact centers, uh, customer support, HR, because these departments have long documents. So if you can read those, and you can start predicting the next token or the next word, then then you can help the the consumers. So we actually, I use AI all the time without even realizing. I've noticed how good Google Docs, uh, email clients have become, where it's already predicting based mm-hmm. on the preceding word, it's predicting what I should write next. And so summarizing, translation, all those things, are already being done very well. Uh, of course, there's hallucination and all that we'll talk about, but that is the state of AI. We are trying to mimic the way humans learn and and copy that uh, in, in the world of AI. Yeah, and uh, that was the whole point of neural networks way back when. I mean, I've been studying these things for quite a long time, but the amount of progress that's been made in the last few years really is staggering. And it's partly due to the transformer models. And Jürgen Schmidhuber, I've had a thread going with him back and forth. He wrote those papers. And what's funny is he wrote them like in the 1990s or something. Mm -hmm. So it goes to show you that it took a long time for the compute power and the architectures of computers to to meet this demand. And of course, GPUs, and we'll talk a bit later about the CPUs, but it took a long time for us to get here. But now here we are, and it's obvious that this is going to shake the foundations of enterprise computing, right, Sanjeev? Yeah, so so thanks for bringing this up. I think the the fact that technology advanced to a point where we could uh, do some of these things now, right, they made it possible. In 1990s, there were great ideas. In fact, AI started in 1959, I believe, in some university uh, is when, but technology is definitely uh, a big uh, advantage we have today. The second thing is a transformer model, you said. Prior to, in fact, even when I started, when I got into this space of data analytics and AI, we would take a model and then just completely retrain every every bit of that model every single time. In 2017, Google came out with a paper called Attention is All You Need. And all of a sudden, this transformer model made things even more possible because now it's sort of in an iterative manner, incrementally we can train bits and pieces. So now we can go a lot faster. So not only do we have GPUs, but now we have a better technique of creating these foundation models. And that's why all of a sudden, 
uh, we we see so in 2017 transformer model came out then uh, gpt2 gpt3 came out many years ago actually but the moment we had chat gpt we instantly gave a user interface in which anybody in the local language mostly english but i'm not sure about other languages could ask a question and that was literally the inflection point where ai became mainstream yes. uh, Without question, that's exactly right. And I, I remember when that happened and like, boom, it was like an explosion or something. And I do want to comment. I'll bring Osama in here one second. But uh, one of our regular listeners is a super smart guy who often sends me emails, Alex Husky. He works for Excel or Exxon Mobile, I think it is. And uh, he he sent me this email that was really compelling. I used it in, in a webinar with Vertica a couple of weeks ago. He said, we cannot allow these things to pattern recognize their way to the truth which is very interesting because that's really what they're doing. It's pattern recognition. It's understanding this looks a lot like that. So I'm going to go ahead and put this forward. It's all pattern recognition, but there's no moorings, at least in the LLMs, right? That's why you have vector databases. That's why you train your models on trusted data because you're giving it these anchors of truth, almost like you try to hold down a hot air balloon with, with with the cords, right? You're trying to hold it down to earth and keep it focused on what's going on here. Not that you'll ever be able to completely eradicate the hallucinations. I don't know, but we're certainly gonna gonna find out. But uh, with that, let's bring in Osama Fayad. What are your thoughts about all this stuff? And I, I, Sanjeev and I seem to agree this is absolutely transformational. This is not just some evolutionary modification of how we do things. This is going to fundamentally change how we think about software. And frankly, I think these new models are really gonna be almost like the new application fabric going forward. But what do you think? Yeah, I think, uh, well, I I agree with some of what's been said. I I have a few disagreements here. Um, I mean, we'll start with, so first of all, I mean, you mentioned that it started a long time ago. It's even longer than what you implied, uh, Sanjeev. <laughs> this whole thing started with perceptrons, which is from the 1940s. Uh, Frank Rosenblatt kind of published his first algorithm in 58. Uh, in 1958, Right after he published that article, there was a New York Times article talking about machines that teach themselves and how they're going to replace our jobs and all of that. So the hype has been around for a very, very, very long time. I think I think what has been changed uh, recently is kind of, for sure, the compute and the ability to kind of spend huge amounts of uh, money and energy on compute. Let's not forget uh, ChatGPT, uh, GPT-3, which is the predecessor of 3.5 and 4.0. And that was the last time, uh, you know, back in 2000 was the last time OpenAI was open about what it was doing. Had 175 billion uh, parameters in its uh, large language model. Uh, the cost of training that on a very limited data set was about $3 million worth of energy just to do the training once. Now, that leads me to a, a, a few items I, I wanted to, to comment on. Um, I think a lot of the technology today, uh, from a scientific perspective, it's very simplistic. It's really just autocomplete on steroids. All of these models work by guessing the next, not even word, but the next token. So what's the next most likely token to autocomplete what typically starts with a prompt. And the prompt uh, 
gives um, a way to restrict kind of those memories and say, hey, do your retrievals or do your autocomplete based on what's in this prompt. And the prompts are very limited in size today just because of computational costs and so forth. So uh, I said scientific. Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Actually, not very interesting, although there's a couple of interesting facts. Uh, one of them is how could a model with so many parameters? And remember, I said GPT-3 was 175 billion parameters. We think 3.5 is about half a trillion. We think G uh, uh, GPT-4.0 is about 1.3 to 1.7 trillion uh, no one, I guess, outside OpenAI and maybe Microsoft knows. Uh, but regardless, um, trying to train, uh, and I'll talk here about what Eric referred to as the secrets. I don't know if I call them dirty secrets. They're not, but they're not <laughs> talked about a lot. The secrets of making AI work uh, that the companies don't talk about a lot are, and, and I have a list of seven of them, but I'll focus on the big three. The big three are one, it's continuous need of human intervention and correction. So don't underestimate how much human intervention is happening, both in real time and on a continuous basis hmm. to get these models trained up so that they work. Uh, and if you remove the human intervention, which, by the way, uh, our term experiential AI refers to AI with the human in the loop because we actually recognize how important it is to have the human inter intervention to correct the AI. And in, in generative AI, this is especially needed because all these models are knowledge-free. All they can build is a whole bunch of weights or parameters and hope that the autocomplete works. They have no conceptual models. They have no understanding of what they say, the technical term for large language models is stochastic parrots. They are parrots in that they don't understand what they say and stochastic in that they have a degree of randomness. So they appear to have variation. Uh, and we'll get back into kind of uh, hallucinations or what I like to, what we prefer calling errors rather than hallucinations. But let me talk about the, so the first secret is huge amount of human intervention is needed. So after the training, after for, for GPT-3, after the $3 million of energy usage is spent, you actually, that's not the end. You have to actually put an army of people against the model to do what's called uh, fine tuning or, or post uh, training uh, tuning. And that's where they catch all the weird corner cases and so forth, lots of reinforcement learning, lots of mm -hmm. uh, uh, feedback coming from humans. And the reason you need humans is you actually need the common sense reasoning, which no machine today has. No AI has common sense reasoning, so you need the humans for that reason. So that's secret number one. Secret number two has to do with data. So Eric very eloquently said, you need trusted data, well-managed data, truthful data, all of that. What the companies don't talk about is that data set that uh, say GPT-3 got trained on. It is not the entire web as many people try to tell you. 
In fact, they started with that path and they quickly realized that doesn't work. The web is filled with contradictory information, bad data, um, right. um, hate speech, all sorts of weird stuff. So they had to go back and do a lot of manual curation. That manual curation is not cheap. This is why OpenAI needed all those billions of dollars of investment, both for the energy and compute infrastructure, as well yeah. as the curation of the data, which is a big, big deal, right? Yeah, and let's let's pick this up out of the break, folks. Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back. You're listening to DM Radio. <laughs> Welcome back to DM Radio. Here's your host, Eric Cavanaugh. All right, folks, back here on a very fun DM Radio, kicking off 2024 with a bang. I'm a fan of even-numbered years, so it's going to be a good year. The leap year, so we're going to leap forward. Uh, very appropriate metaphorically. But uh, Osama, we cut off in the last segment there, and you were talking about how with ChatGPT, it was not in fact trained on just rando content all over the web. They figured out pretty early, that's not gonna work. We have to be careful about curating this, but go ahead and pick up where you left off. Yeah, so so the cost of curation is extremely expensive. They also went to sources like Wikipedia, which is moderated content. They they then thought, hey, scientific articles, people are unlikely to lie or, or put false facts uh, into a scientific articles, so let's use that. So there's a lot of the use uh, uh, leveraging kind of uh, the curation. That's that's the second secret, which is you gotta curate the data and you gotta uh, very carefully uh, put it together. Um, the third one that that is not talked much about, but I suspect will become talked about a lot, um, is has to do with prompts, right? So uh, people are talking about New York Times had an article about prompt engineering and. People are talking about the new job of prompt engineering. Uh, as my colleague, who's who's a, a professor at Northeastern and a, a core member of our faculty at the Institute, uh, Byron Wallace uh, likes to say, it's not really prompt engineering. Uh, it's all more like uh, black black magic and uh, and weird casts here. <laughs> the, the reason he says this is because. Um, a small variation in the prompt can give you a completely different result. Hmm. And, uh, you know, this is ignoring the errors and all of that, just changing that that prompt a little bit. And people are writing papers now on how adding some weird prefixes to the prompt kind of restrains your attention and, and gets the uh, LLM to produce a much better answer. Uh, and, and there's a lot of fun and interesting papers to read on this. So that's the that's the third area, which is a huge dependence on prompts, and nobody understands how to do the prompts right. Mm. In fact, you know, RAG is is one of the attempts to kind of try to control and do some post prompting to to fix the issues by doing lookups, and the lookups are are there because they're trying to overcome the bad reconstructions that the autocomplete comes up with, right? So right. Uh, certain tasks where you require a precise answer, like if you're trying to come up with a bibliography or if you're referring to certain legal cases, you can't just do it from memory. you got to be very precise. 
And if you try to do it on an autocomplete basis, you will actually end up making up things like references and making up things like prior cases, which has happened with that famous uh, lawyer who, who submitted a very good looking and eloquent brief to the judge without actually checking the, the cases that were quoted and, and ended up being sanctioned and some say lost his license. But anyway, um, the point is that when you use these models, and this is why I don't believe uh, these uh, large language models are going to replace us, they need a lot of human processing after the fact to basically judge, edit, and adjust the output. And that is critical. This is what happens a lot inside the companies, a lot of adjustments and interventions. When it happens, when you use it as a user, it often, that information doesn't get captured. And that's another lost opportunity, which is might lead us to discuss private language models versus the public uh, language models. But, but saying this, hopefully kind of can help demystify how we think about these models. I said scientifically, they're not super interesting. There's a couple of interesting scientific facts about them. No one today scientifically understands why a model with so many parameters actually works. Statistics actually has theorems and wisdoms that basically say, if you have too many parameters, you will overfit and never learn correctly. Right. And overfitting is a huge problem in statistics. But it turns out as you increase the parameters beyond the zone of where you're overfitting and your performance is going down on the test sets, somehow nobody understands why around the millions to billions of parameters, the performance starts coming back. And no one has a scientific understanding of why statistics says that should never happen. Mm -hmm. So that is an interesting scientific fact. But I, I will say the one thing that's interesting, which is why these models will be with us for a long time to come, is that they have they hold a huge promise economically. They address many of the tasks in the knowledge economy today. And in, in the richer countries, the knowledge economy is about 50% of the economy. And in poorer economies, it's somewhere between 19 and 29%, according to the UN. But if you have something that affects half the economy, even a 2% or 1% acceleration can have a huge, profound impact economically. And this is because we created a bunch of jobs in the knowledge economy that are very robotic, very repetitive, very mundane. And that gives a window for a lot of these large language models to do their thing with their autocomplete capabilities and help us accelerate. Now, people are not talking about one and 2% uh, acceleration. They're talking about 30 to 50 to 80% acceleration. And that's a whole other area that basically says whether these models are scientifically interesting or not, they are economically very interesting in the context of the knowledge economy. Yeah, that, that's that, that's all excellent content, uh, Osama. Thank you very much. And I'm going to bring Sanjeev back in, but you reminded me of a very interesting story I encountered. This is uh, analogous in a certain sense. We tried to get to Europe uh, last year for a conference, a very fun uh, event sponsored by Software AG, and I wanted to bring my family, and we needed to get their passports. And post-COVID, going through the passport agency is just not fun at all, because typically in the old days, and it's still true, but if you had business travel and you could show that you have tickets and all this stuff, then you could get an expedited passport, but you have to go to one of the passport facilities. And it turns out they're all backlogged. Every last one of them is backlogged completely. And of course, this is the U.S. government, so you can't expect the cutting edge in terms of system design. 
but I figured some things out. So you have to call in and try to get a meeting somewhere. And the closest one here is Buffalo, New York. And then there's DC and Baltimore and lots of other places you can go. And uh, it was incredibly frustrating. You have to go through this whole litany of ans- of questions to answer. Do you have travel plans? Yes, I do. What's your city? Blah, blah, blah. Like, it's like 10 questions in a row they ask you. I got to the point, I made 100 phone calls, okay? I got to the point where I would just read off the list of everything they're going to ask me. And then one guy said, oh, I'm sorry, I still have to ask because those are the rules. I'm like, all right, fine, whatever. And every time you would get to it, you'd be like, sorry, there are no appointments. Or they would say, ah, there's an appointment in Buffalo. I'm like, okay, great. And then they'd ask you all these other questions. And by the time you answer those questions, that one is gone. So the system doesn't have any sort of lock on it, meaning like once someone's in, someone else can take that from you. So I'm thinking, what is going on here? One young lady, very clever young lady, she says to me on the phone, she goes, let me just put in some random characters here. So basically, she tricked the database, the system. She just typed in rando characters instead of what you're supposed to do, which is give it cities and all this other stuff. And it worked like a charm. She goes, okay, do you want Seattle, San Francisco, or Vancouver, or whatever? It's like three different cities. I'm like, what? I'll take San Francisco or Seattle. That's what it was. Because, of course, Vancouver's in Canada. But, uh, so anyway, just to your point about one small change in the prompt can give a very different answer that that has its uh, origins in traditional queries because you can f- sketch out a database with, with a weird query and uh, what was it mark madsen once told me that it takes 10 years of a database in production before you're going to find the edge cases that will crash it so we're still in the early days of understanding these things and the more you play with them the more you realize and here's the last point i'll throw over to sanjeev these things have captured a tremendous amount of information and while it's true that they will make stuff up and have these errors there is an astonishing amount of detail scientific detail language detail all kinds of things are buried in these systems somewhere they're trained somewhere on some on you know they're persisted someplace so it's going to take a while just to figure out what they already know which is a ton but sanjeev take it away yeah, thank you so much, uh, Eric. Uh, great example. And I uh, just want to build upon what Osama uh, said, the economic value of uh, of these uh, new AI models is is tremendous. In fact, I've, I've seen uh, they can raise GDP of a country by 7 to 20 percent. Uh, McKinsey has said uh, every year it's like 4 plus trillion dollars will be added to the economy, global economy, every year, not just once. So how is, so uh, so I trust, you know, if not that much, at least there is a lot of uh, value to be added. The problem uh, I have, uh, I want to address is with prompt. So, so, so it's so funny how, you know, you have to put these secret characters in front of prompt to make it work. I was reading an article uh, just a few days ago because Midjourney, which has been extremely uh, uh, profitable, I don't know if they're profitable, but they're making the good revenue in creating these image uh, outputs. Right. They came out with Midjourney version six a few days ago. In, and the founder of Midjourney was saying that, oh, by the way, the way you did prompts in Midjourney version five, is gone. Don't do it. It'll give bad results. And I'm thinking, wait, you now have to relearn how to even write a prompt. So, for example, what he said was, in Midjourney 5, you could prompt and say, create me this image, assuming I'm using a camera called Leica on a 35 millimeter film. 
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And so that hint would then make the output a certain way. And he's like, no, that's, that's gone. And I was like, this is just like when browsers came out. You know, if you wanted a certain uh, value, you had to put it within quotes and right. with kind of thing. So I, I, be, I guess we are going through the same journey that we went through with a browser. Now we don't even think about it. We just, uh, in fact, Google browser, uh, Google search is so good. It, it reads my mind and autocorrects my horrible spelling mistakes. So I, if this is a journey we are on with foundation models, we will get there. Yeah. What really I find super interesting is whether it's 175 billion parameters or it's a trillion tokens or what it is, I I think we are going to come to a realization where the amount of tokens a model has been trained on is less important than the relevancy of data it's been trained on. Mm-hmm. The more tokens is great because I think one of you said the more tokens we have the model is vastly knowledgeable about grammar and English and all these things, but it's clueless about what my company needs. So, so I, I so what I, I feel in 2024, we're going to see a lot is happening is that we're going to take these pre-trained models because why lose all that training that, that you've done, but then we start fine tuning it and say, here is my data. So just get intelligent about my data, but you don't have to reinvent the wheel. So take a pre-trained model like Llama 2 and just add this additional information on top. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, you know, I just thought of uh, another way I can weave children into this in terms of what GPT will reflect back to you. For anyone who has kids, you know, you got to be careful what you say around kids, especially if you trash talk your neighbor or someone they've met or whatever, because they'll just blurt that out when they meet him. Oh, yeah. Daddy said that you're lazy or something like that. And it's the same thing with these models, because, again, they've absorbed all kinds of information from all over the place. And we don't know how much information is in there. We don't know. We're going to find out. Um, Sam, I do think it's interesting. You pointed out that uh, ChatGPT is no longer open now i guess llama 2 is isn't that the one on facebook they came and just released it open source and it is crazy that you can use these things to mimic behaviors you can mimic sounds you can create music that sounds like it's from a certain artist i mean there are some pretty intense issues that we're going to have to navigate going through uh sama what do you think we got two minutes before the next break go ahead yeah i mean um glad sanjeev mentioned llama 2 from from meta because uh, I like the fact not only that it's open source, truly open source, but also they gave an open source commercial license so you could actually use it to do a business. Uh, up up until a certain size, once you hit the billions in revenue, uh, it, the, the license stops working. Uh, but uh, But in general, that's a huge enabler. Now, what it does enable is a very important point, Eric, that maybe we come back to it, which is the ability to create private, smaller models that are narrow and focused on a domain right. instead of these very large 
very broad models that are trying to boil the ocean mm-hmm. uh, that become very, very susceptible to the errors, what Google likes to call hallucinations. Uh, they become very expensive to maintain, all of that. So that there's a whole topic of how big should your model be? Uh, can you get away with a much smaller model? And how do you maintain that model and feed it based on your usage to Sanjeev's point? If your company is using that model and feeding it a lot of feedback that represents your own IP, if you're using a public model, you can't capture that knowledge. If you're using your own private model, you can actually capture it and and use it. But that requires a data infrastructure, the ability to capture data, the detailed data you need to capture, all of that. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And I think that's the direction that companies are going to go is you're going to have to have your private instance and, you know, I'm sure we'll get better. We'll talk in the next segment about uh, some of these smaller models that are coming out. Because, again, we're just on the cusp. We're at the beginning of this journey, and it's already fascinating. And there are remarkable improvements being made, foundational improvements, improvements, fine-tuning, all sorts of different things. Um, we've got a great live studio audience today, too, with some good comments in there. So feel free to send your questions that way. Otherwise, we'll be right back. Don't touch that dial. You are listening to DM Radio. Welcome back to DM Radio. Here's your host, Eric Cavanaugh. All right, folks, back here on DM Radio with a fun, exciting show with Sanjeev Mohan of Sanjmo and Usama Fayad from Northeastern University, the Institute for Experiential AI. Really cool stuff they're working on over there. And that really just means that there's a human in the loop. And yes, you want a human in the loop. Yes, there are unsupervised models. We get it. Someone joked today online, the uh, AGI will be an unsupervised model. And it will, to to a certain extent, I suppose. But I'm reminding myself that we should get into this interactive AI stuff. And what does that mean? So if you look up the definitions, you'll see on the interwebs, it refers to chatbots, for example, where you're going back and forth with a bot. But there are some other very interesting things that are coming down the pike. And I've heard a little bit about this. But it makes sense if you sit and think about it. I'll tell you that the interactive AI I want, which is to tell Expedia or one of these flight systems, I want to go to San Antonio sometime in June. I don't want to spend 300 bucks round trip. So find me my ticket. And every once in a while, it's just going to wake up and go ping and ping the system and get some answers and ping. And when it finds that information, it's going to go, aha, I got it, boss. Boom, here it is. And it's like your little assistant out there looking for things, waiting for things. And one of the more interesting aspects I've seen about AI, maybe Sanjeev, I'll throw this over to you, is, uh, you know, watching again with Google, because they were the first that I saw to start finishing your sentences when you're in Gmail. And they were also doing something interesting where they would surface emails I had not responded to and suggest them and say, hey, do you want to follow up on this? I see that this now in my text messages too. It'll surface something that goes, oh, do you want to respond to this? I think that is going to be the most prevalent way that AI affects the average consumer or the average business person is in suggestions based upon patterns of behavior and weightings, essentially, because a lot of times it's been correct. I'm like, oh, yeah, I haven't followed up with Daryl. I got to do that. <laughs> I'm like, thanks, computer. That was pretty cool. But Sanjeev, what do you think? So now I know why you don't respond to my emails. So. <laughs> 
so, uh, Eric, um, uh, we what we are starting to see is there's a lot of emphasis on performance, cost. Uh, by the way, you know, someone mentioned uh, how, what was the cost of training GPT-3. Uh, it's just not sustainable. This is like massive energy cost uh, of, you know, in fact, every time you do a, ask a question to chat GPT, that's a very expensive uh, query compared to a Google search. So so in this process of reducing the footprint, uh, we are, you know, we are seeing this concept of mixed, uh, mixture of experts. But these are smaller models, but they're kind of chained together. In fact, chaining has become a very important thing. It's basically the idea is if I, I want to get to a space where I'm, I, I'm not just asking for summarization, I'm asking for some some action to be taken. So I ask, uh, a, like, for example, uh, a new person joins a company and uh, they need a lot of onboarding stuff to be done. So can we use these foundation models to have this live uh, English language chat? And then the LLM says, oh, wait, I, you need to now go do your your benefits, someone send you to Fidelity or Cigna or whatever company it may be. Oh, now once you've done that, now I need to get you to fill up your payroll form and on and on it goes. So this actionable piece uh, of uh, of uh, AI is, is the next holy grail. Uh, and we're starting to see that where you take a task divide into subtasks, find a model for each of those subtasks that it's best suited for. For example, uh, I may ask a question in French, but it's an American company, so a translation model kicks in, translates into English, then right. does... So So I see, and this concept that I'm talking about is what we are now calling AI agents. So these, so there's... The idea is you ask a question, it goes to a semantic router or a mixture right. of experts that then determines a plan, just like a query optimizer says. Right. So it's the same idea instead of a query, now it's more of a command. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And you know, I was talking to Sanjeev this morning or maybe a couple of days ago and Osama this morning, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, in the database world and like a vertical database, for example, you have these inner joins and outer joins and all these different things that the database does in order to pull information together to feed you the answer that you're looking for. Well, these models don't really care about that stuff. I mean, they've learned about inner joins and outer joins and they can reflect back to you all sorts of details about how they work and how much they cost and all this stuff. But this is a completely different way of of accessing information. Right. And again, all this stuff has been persisted in these models. So if you look at the RAG architecture, the whole idea, and I, I think this is what you, where you want to go, is you want to kind of start with what the moorings say, then go into the GPT, then come back to the moorings again and go, okay, are, are, does this look good? And then deliver the answer. There's a company, Kindy, K-Y-N-D-I, that has a pretty good solution for this, where they will not only give you this answer, but they will show you where in your documentation they pulled that answer from. That's called a citation. <laughs> And it's pretty important stuff. That's what you want. But uh, Osama, I'll throw this one over to you. This an attendee asked a great question about this mixtural 8x7b stuff. 
saying, uh, what is your opinion about a near future where we have smaller specialized models that work together? That's exactly what Sanjeev was talking about. And I'm reminded of a show we did with Dan Bodner, the CEO of Verant, a uh, customer experience company, do a lot of really interesting stuff. And he, they have like 30 bots, he says. And I said, oh, maybe someday they'll do more things than they do now. And he goes, no, it's actually best to have bots do very specific things and do them very, very well. And at the Sanjeev's point, hand it off. So one bot will find the right flight. The other bot will execute the transaction. This is just an example. But the idea is that, yes, you will have, and, and my buddy Lou Simon from Optima, he built out five GPTs in his environment. One is marketing, one is sales, one is admin, one is is finance. And he has them hash out business plans together, like talking to each other. So this stuff is possible now. And it's just off the charts crazy. Osama, what do you think? Yeah, no, I mean, there's no, there's no doubt one of the biggest lessons learned throughout the history of AI for, for, for the past 70 years is the more narrow the domain, the more narrow the problem, the exponentially higher your chances of success are. So if you can, and that's an art, figuring out how narrow to make it and how small to make it uh, gives you the ability to solve it very well, all the way down to you know, the narrower you make it, the more likely it is that you will know everything you need to know about that subdomain, that very narrow domain, and therefore avoid all these corner cases that typically kill you in, right. in AI solutions. Uh, a great example, I mean, you referred, we, we are creature, you know, so this autocomplete technology is useful because we are creatures of habit. I mean, back when I was uh, the uh, chief data officer at, at Yahoo and we started uh, Yahoo Research, um, one of the we we started with this autocomplete on search, um, and then and then Google picked it up uh, as as copying from Yahoo, honestly at the time. But the point is, we discovered very quickly that it became a hugely popular feature uh, because people guess what, you know, seventy percent or some I forget the exact number of the queries you make are queries you've made before. Uh, same with maps, right? Uh, most of the time you're navigating, you're trying to navigate to a place you've been to before, right? And it's rare that you go somewhere new. Um, one of my most favorite applications of smart technology, I mean, look at how narrow this is. On my Samsung phone, this is like 10 years ago. If somebody tries to call me and I'm in a meeting and I'll say, I'll call you later as an auto response, right? It, it, it gives me like three or four SMSs that I could send as an auto response. I'll say, I'll call you later. Guess what? It actually, 15 minutes later, it pops up a reminder, hey, you said you were gonna call so-and-so later, right? <laughs> uh, and I thought that well, that was extremely useful, right? Talk about somebody who doesn't forget about a follow-up or a promise you made, because I've sent many of these messages and then I get busy and I never call back. Uh, so so those are that's an example of kind of being very narrow. And that takes us to the whole mixture of experts domain, which is, can you come up with these very, very, very reliable, very narrow experts and then mm. solve the problem? And this is a problem. It's unsolved. Which expert is kind of the expert that applies on this particular problem that you fed? Uh, but that's an easier. I mean, at least now you have a candidate correct answer somewhere in your reservoir and you just have to let the, the right expert win in that mixture of experts architecture. Uh, that's been around for a long time. We were doing mixture of experts back in the '90s, uh, in the in the NIPS, uh, now the NURIPS conference. Yeah. 
Well, in in a way, it's kind of like the ensemble approach, right? If you're yes, you're it is working exactly data science, right? It's in yep. an, it's ensemble. It's a team. You've got a team. You want many eyes to to make few the errors. You want many hands to make light the work. That kind of stuff. Well, folks, what a wonderful show we've had here today talking to Dr. Osama Fayad. He is the inaugural director of the Institute of Experiential uh, AI at uh, Northeastern, and Sanji Mohan, the legendary Sanjmo podcast photo segment coming up next you're listening to dm radio all right folks time for the podcast bonus segment here on dm radio first show of 2024 and what a humdinger it has been talking to dr usama fayad of the northeastern institute experiential ai i love this stuff and sanjeev mohan of sanjmo and uh osama i'll throw it back over to you first to talk about the whole meaning of experiential ai is to have a human in the loop right so the you know the red-eyed robot there's no human in that loop in the movies right it's just off to the races doing its thing there's a story just the other day about a tesla robot that apparently injured some person that he thought was a box i guess so i don't know he's going to try to move the box around we don't know exactly what happened there, but yeah, there is there are all these fears. But you know, to your point, uh, we're a long way from any of these neural networks really looking anything like the human brain, and uh, they still pretty much do what you tell them to do. I remember seeing a story too where they're like, "Oh, well, this we got this AI to lie," and there's a story about the New York Times where it was asking the guy to marry him. But I'm like, that's a misuse of the technology. You're not understanding how you're supposed to use this stuff. But Usama, I'll throw it over to you. Experiential AI, Northeastern University, tell us about it. Yeah, so, I mean, for us, experiential AI is uh, shorthand for AI with a human in the loop. Uh, contrary to popular belief, uh, AI is not about building a model and then, you know, set it, set it and forget it. Uh, the working models in reality, be, be they the, the Google search engine, MLR, the machine learned relevance that decides which pages are most relevant to your ranking, to uh, what we're seeing with ChatGPT, there is a continuous uh, feedback done by armies of people whose job is to look at things like search results or query results on ChatGPT and then essentially inject uh, human common sense into it and say, no, 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 this answer is off. Uh, you know, this query should, you know, this answer should be higher in this query result. This answer should be lower, or this is a meme. It means something completely different. Stuff like this, a computer cannot infer on its own because it doesn't have the kind of knowledge we have from being embedded in society and all of that. So that's experiential AI. And in fact, I we, we really philosophically believe that this is about you know, you refer to it as, uh, you know, a team of humans and AIs working together. Uh, and, and to me, I like to think about it as, you know, what we're about is about human-aided machine intelligence mm. and machine-aided human intelligence. Mm -hmm. There are many things that are more appropriate, more robotic. Uh, a machine should do them. And a human should either approve them or be okay with them. And over time, as it becomes very, very, very reliable, it gets automated. Uh, but many times the machine actually needs help because its guesses and its knowledge uh, and, and the AI's performance isn't there. And the only way to improve it is to give it that feedback. Mm -hmm. So one key thing for, for 
uh, people to understand and companies to understand is when you are interacting with these AIs, that interaction in itself is valuable. The fact that it gave you the wrong answer and then you recovered from it and intervened and said, no, 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 this is what should be the answer. That's one of your biggest drivers for not relying on the public models, language, large language models, for example, but building your own where you can feed that back in and say, no, in this situation, here's what the answer should be. And through multiple trainings and so forth, which come as a side effect of doing operations, whether it's a call center with people troubleshooting issues or an engineer on the manufacturing plant uh, or somebody monitoring for security or cybersecurity or uh, physicians and nurses monitoring patients in hospitals and clinics. All of that knowledge should get captured along with the context and fed back. And that allows all of these organizations to capture that IP, to capture that knowledge instead of letting it go in the exhaust which is what happens most of the time. You know, if I walk into a typical hospital and say, what happened with this patient exactly at this time? Why did you intervene? Guess what? That information may not be recorded, maybe written on some pad somewhere, maybe in a different system, all of that. So it's a very, uh, uh, it's a very messy situation today. And uh, one of the things that companies need to learn from the AI haves, from the Googles and the uh, chat GPTs and so forth is capturing every interaction is extremely valuable. That is gold. Mm. You should capture it and reuse it. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. And uh, I was talking with some of this morning about that. I'll throw it over to Sanjeev for a final comment here. The little tiny details really do make a difference and they make a big difference because he was saying that human beings think in business intelligence, we want high level reports, we want the outliers, we want to see a graph or a chart to understand an aggregate or a roll up. But what the AI really wants to sink its teeth into are all the little itty bitty details that human beings overlook. And that's how they find interesting. That's how you can train them to, to find these patterns. Because I've noticed there are things that these AI engines pick up that I had not thought of that are very compelling and very interesting. So there is some some real magic underneath the covers here and how they operate. But final thoughts from you, Sanjeev, what do you think? When I, uh, when I meet with CDOs or heads of analytics, IT, and they tell me, yeah, we are using AI, my first question is how? Just, you know, I don't want to hear <laughs> practice, you know. And it turns out that people are... But when I dig deeper, I'm like, well, but, but what about accuracy angle? It turns out there's always a human in the loop, at least now. But you would think that, oh, what's the point then? Well, it is still uh, delivering results that are mind-boggling. For example, I talked to uh, to an insurance company uh, at AWS reInvent. I met the CDO there, who was telling me that the time it used to process a claim, look up the policy, all the contextual information, then do the claims was many weeks. But by using an LLM and human in the loop, they've reduced it significantly. So, and this is something that you can measure and right. monitor. So, so they're monetizing their usage of AI with human in the loop. So I think that that's a very powerful combination. Yeah, and that's, that's great news. Definitely a best practice. Having yeah. the human in the loop is a best practice. <laughs> it's a best practice. It's highly, 
highly recommended and it's good for all of us actual humans who will still have jobs no matter what you've been told <laughs> well folks this has been a fantastic session we'll have to get these gentlemen back on again sometime soon if you want to be in the show send me an email info at dmradio.biz email is still a thing i promise and we'll talk to you next time you've been listening to dm radio express 106.5 fm the number one fm talk radio station in the KCAA, the station that leaves no listener behind, Express 106.5 FM. For several years, KCAA has been marketing the Longevity brand of nutritional and personal care products. Our experience with Longevity has been 100% positive, so we are pleased to recommend them to you. Regarding nutritional supplements, we recommend Pollen Burst in the berry flavor and Tangy Tangerine 2.0 in the tablet form. For regularity issues, we recommend 3-Day Cleanse. And for personal care, we recommend Morning Hydration Cream. You can shop online for Longevity at www.kcaateam.com or you can order by phone by calling 800-982-3197 and tell customer support that you are part of the KCAA team. Longevity is an American company based in San Diego. Call Longevity at 800-982-3197 and ask about monthly auto ship that allows you to buy Longevity products at wholesale prices. That number again, 800-982-3197. Learn to make money five ways with rental real estate. Double your money with apartments and get your map to financial freedom. And that map starts with a free workshop. Sign up now at lifestylesunlimited.com. Click on the Join Free Workshop tab and attend online or in person. That's lifestylesunlimited.com. Lifestylesunlimited.com. Again, that's lifestylesunlimited.com. Limited seating, unlimited potential. Have something you want to say? Thanks for calling the KCAA Rant Line at 909-353-1050. For comments, concerns, and complaints, please hold. Call the KCAA Rant Line today and let us hear your two cents worth. Might even make it on the air. Call 909-353-1050 and let us know what's really on your mind. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. KCAA Radio, the station that leaves no ranter behind. 909-353-1050. 909-353-1050. Let's hear your voice. Make it loud and proud on our KCAA rant line. 909-353-1050. That number again, 909-353-1050. Thanks for calling the KCAA rant line. For comments, concerns, and complaints, please hold... I'm Dr. Anthony Lizowitz, and this is Climate Connections. There are more than 8,000 known species of amphibians, newts, salamanders, big warty toads, and frogs of every color. These semi-aquatic critters provide food for birds, snakes, and fish, and they help humans by eating insects, including disease-spreading mosquitoes. But many amphibians are in trouble. According to the latest Global Amphibian Assessment, about 40% of species are considered globally threatened. And I think it's very important for the public and for the community to understand that this is a very serious matter. 
Gina Delatonia of the Amphibian Survival Alliance says for decades the biggest threats to amphibians have been habitat loss and disease. But now climate change has emerged as another major risk. Amphibians are especially vulnerable because they're cold-blooded. So they are directly affected by changes in the external temperature, humidity. And many live in specific microclimates, such as by a particular stream. So when conditions change, some are unable to migrate. As warming continues, the risks to amphibians are expected to grow. So it will be increasingly important to protect these vulnerable creatures. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To learn more about climate change, visit climateconnections.org. KCAA Radio has openings for one-hour talk shows. If you want to host a radio show, now is the time. Make KCAA your flagship station. Our rates are affordable and our services are second to none. We broadcast to a population of 5 million people. Plus, we stream and podcast on all major online audio and video systems. If you've been thinking about broadcasting a weekly radio program on real radio plus the Internet, contact our CEO at 281-599-9800. 281-599-9800. You can Skype your show from your home to our Redlands, California studio where our live producers and engineers are ready to work with you personally. A radio program on KCAA is the perfect work from home avocation in these stressful times. Just type kcaaradio.com into your browser to learn more about hosting a show on the best station in the nation or call our CEO for details. 281-599-9800. It's that time of year again. No, not the holidays. Medicare open enrollment. And if you have questions about Medicare, you should talk to the local experts, Paul Barrich and Associates. Paul and his agents are certified with plans that are accepted by most of the medical groups in our area. Call 909-793-0385. Their service is free, and after 42 years in the business, their agents are trained to help you pick the plan that's right for you. Tahibo Tea Club's original Pure Pal Diarco Super Tea helps build red corpuscles in the blood, which carry oxygen to our organs and cells. Our organs and cells need oxygen to regenerate themselves. The immune system needs oxygen to develop, and cancer dies in oxygen. So the tea is great for healthy people because it helps build the immune system. And it can truly be miraculous for someone fighting a potentially life-threatening disease due to an infection, diabetes, or cancer. The tea is also organic and naturally caffeine-free. A one-pound package of tea is $49.99. 95, which includes shipping. To order, please visit TeheboTeaClub.com. Tehebo is spelled T like Tom, A-H-E-E, B like boy, O, then continue with